This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Joan Ranquette. Joan Ranquette is an animal communicator and energy healer who teaches basic and advanced workshops nationwide. She's the author of Communication with All Life and the founder of Communication with All Life University. What sounds true, Joan Ranquette has written a new book called Energy Healing for Animals, a hands-on guide for enhancing the health, longevity, and happiness of your pets, where she offers an essential guide for enhancing your pet's health and quality of life and deepening your connection with your beloved companions. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Joan and I spoke about animal communication, how it works, and the evidence for it. We also talked about how animals have an energy body similar to the way humans have an energy body in terms of meridians and chakras and how Joan works with animals as an energy healer. We talked about how to apply energy healing in different circumstances, such as when one is moving from one household to another or when one's experiencing a particularly difficult time, such as a loss or a divorce and how to work with energy healing when an animal is going through the death process. Finally, I asked Joan what was the one most important thing she's learned in working with animals as an energy healer and an animal communicator. Here's my conversation with Joan Ranquette. Joan, as an animal communicator, part of the core of your work is using the language of telepathy. And you teach that this is a language that's actually innate to all of us. So I wanted to begin by talking some about telepathy, what it means to you, how you work with it. And I'm hoping you're going to use words to answer my question. You can describe other ways of communicating, but just use words when you answer, please. Okay, so you didn't get that message just now? I'm kidding. Um, So telepathy is the transference of pictures, words, and feelings. And it is the um, language we speak as, um, that we use. It Actually, let me back up. It's the communication when we first come into the world as babies. And that communication starts to break down as we learn language. And our animals have uh, an ability to, you know, of course, they can get our attention by barking or meowing or um, a horse can neigh, or we can also understand what's going on with them by physical, um, by, you know, watching physical signs and uh, body language. But the thing that, that the tool I use and... um, 
everybody's using it whether they know it or not, um, is telepathy. So it's picking up on the pictures, words, and feelings of our animal companions. And a lot of times people don't even realize they're doing it, and yet they're participating by uh, continuing to picture a, a naughty behavior or um, maybe an animal not getting better. They're actually accidentally compounding the situation. So I love for people to have a big awareness of how this is actually, to me, step one in kind of energy medicine with animals is start understanding how uh, telepathic you are and, and how intense that relationship is. Now, why do you say that's step one in energy healing for animals? Because I think um, when I look at someone's situation, and if I'm there as the animal communicator, and I come... Now, mind you, I've I'll have had... You know, my morning starts with, with quite a, a rituals. I mean, I, I meditate, and there's prayer, and I work out, and I have... I like to say that I, I get my frequency as high as I can so that I can come to the session later in the day with a high frequency and um, be available for things to shift. And I think that when we have awareness of something, so someone understood why their dog was chewing its paws or why their horse was bucking at the going into the canter or why their cat was meowing incessantly at four in the morning, you know, then you've got a you've got that awareness starts to shift the perception from the um guardian standpoint and that's going to shift for the animal companion. Mm-hmm. Okay, when I think of telepathic communication with animals, I have a pretty I think high level of comfort with sending pictures, words, images and of hoping that an animal will pick up on it. But when it comes to receiving telepathic information, I often feel like I'm just making it up. I have no confidence at all. I think I'm just making that up. I have no idea. I mean, sure, I just made up a whole film strip of what my dog was saying to me, but I can't tell the difference between receiving a telepathic message and the power of my imagination. You know, it so funny because when uh, I was married and I had little stepkids at the time who are now grown up and uh, they always used to say, let's talk to the animals. And then my stepdaughter would always say, I think I'm just making this up. And it turns out now she's in a philosophy class at University of San Francisco and she's doing her paper on telepathy. So sometimes even when we're making it up, it still sticks with us and uh, you probably aren't making it up. And so one of the ways that, uh, the reason I teach and why I really highly recommend being in a class setting is when we are doing the receiving part, and it's not like it's some big verb, but when we are um, open and allow information to come through, it often doesn't feel real. It does feel like an imagined movie strip. Uh, or you're getting like some obvious word that's like, that doesn't even make sense. Um, so that's the sort of thing that I call it a telepathic muscle. That is like the you're starting to feel into what it would be like to get this information, even though it feels like it's imagined. But you didn't have that Im- that image three minutes ago, so there might be some validity to it. But one of the best ways to to kind of 
sink into it is to be in a class setting or somewhere where you can have the information verified. And in my classes, I have people keep one journal just for their animal communication experiences because at the end of the day, when they start doubting themselves, it's like they can look at that journal as physical proof that they have had several successful animal communication sessions. So it's it's building a muscle, and it's trusting yourself, and it takes practice, and it takes a lot of um, being around open people to um, let you kind of practice with their animals before you come home and try the more arduous task of talking to your own dog. Mm-hmm. It's easier with someone else's. And how did your own gifts as an animal communicator come online? How did you discover that this was something you were gifted at? Well, I had uh, I had the horse of my dreams was a, a thoroughbred that I I got in um, Los Angeles in the actually late eighties, and um, I actually used an animal communicator then, and I had I was enthralled with it and I was in the film business at the time so I um I really loved acting and writing and there's no way I was going to give that up but I would follow this woman around and I, I at the time in my life I was videoing everything and so I every time she, anytime she came to the barn I would video it and video the experience and then I'd, I'd make copies for people if their horses were talked to or their dogs were talked to and as I was making copies of the video I would watch and say I knew that about that horse. How did I know that about that horse? And I kind of shrug it off. So I, I kind of, I would stalk her with the woman when she was at our barn and, and just ask her a lot of questions about it. And she, uh, you know, just kept saying, you can do it too. Well, I lost the mare that um, the horse of my dreams the night of uh, she gave birth. And I didn't actually lose her, but she went into, she had to go into surgery. So I, I really did lose her and the connection that I had that night. Her body stayed alive for another two week, two months, um, and she was in ICU, and I had to, um, I, you know, she'd been pregnant. She gave birth that night. I had an orphan colt on my hand, so I was suddenly no longer living in a West Hollywood apartment, but uh, staying in a stall with an orphan colt, and that was in 93, and I had some challenges with him, and I also had another horse, and uh, I started having challenges with her, and I just, it was so, I tried to find that animal communicator's phone number because both of them were physical problems that no vet was solving, and uh, I could not find the phone number for that particular animal communicator, and the next day, by chance, I saw a flyer for an animal communication class. And so I went to the class, and it turns out I was um, I was pretty good. And it was fun. And I just kept studying and practicing and telling. And I practiced. I mean, when I say I practiced, I was, uh, I would, I could go talk to people's animals all day long. I just, I loved it so much. And that's, And let me ask you a question, Joan. When you say you discovered that you were pretty good, what was the feedback or the evidence that you were good? So in, in, a, in a, this is why a class is great for somebody. Um, 
and I love to teach because I love watching the light bulb go off. When, uh, if if you were to talk to my dog right now, okay, here's a great example. I have a lab. I have three dogs, two Border Collie Crosses and a lab. My lab is probably the only lab that doesn't like to swim. So in a class setting, if I were to, you know, bring the lab in or have everybody look at the picture of her, and somebody said, uh, yeah, this dog, it was their first time, and they came up with something like, she's fun, she's funny, she's goofy around the house, and she doesn't like to swim, I would say, wow, that is amazingly accurate. Yeah. Because they got a number of things. So I always tell people in classes, you're not right or wrong, but you're going for accuracy. So when you can start, so when I was pretty good, it was that I had picked up on a number of things about um, the teacher's dog and then her horse. And then we did one more animal and I was sold. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Okay, now I want to talk some about animal emotions, because as we move into this topic of energy healing for animals, working with the emotions of animals is, of course, important. So what do we know about working, let's say, with horses, cats, and dogs, which are the three animals you focus on in your new book? What do we know about their emotions compared to human emotions? Well, um, you know, the, obviously, if we look at you know a National Geographic story, and we see that uh, elephants will grieve over the loss of an elephant, and they've created community, and they will communally grieve. Obviously, they feel feelings as deeply as we do. They just have something very different at stake, and that is um, survival. So they can't spend their whole next year over the place of where the baby elephant died. So they have, they can feel as deeply, but they also have an ability to move on in a way that um, we often don't. And, you know, certainly things can trigger a bad memory, like, you know, someone will say to me, something must have happened dog with a guy with a hat because my dog hates guys with hats so they can still be traumatized by certain things but i like to think of if if you they they part of animals ability to move emotion is also to physically move so if um i like this example if there's a duck in a pond and it sees a fox at the edge of the pond and it's the fox is getting nearer. All that fear and terror can um, rise up in that duck, but the duck can uh, almost release it by flying away. And that terror doesn't stay with that duck in the same way that terror might stay with us as we continue to replay memories or are reminded by people in our lives about certain events. So mostly, and and then I'll also say that what happens, going back to that telepathic example at the very beginning when we were talking about how people can often compound a, a challenging situation by accident because they'll say, you know, they'll feel badly for their animal or they'll, um, my favorite is, you know, they, they take their 
dog to the dog park, and every time they turn around and say, this is my rescue. He had this terrible, terrible background, and, oh, he was, you know, they, we retell the story over and over. So that in those situations, often an animal is continually reminded in the same way that we remind, and so they might hang on to the emotion in the same way. But for us, we also have a lot more complex emotions. We have, um, you know, I could sit here and think about um, something where I might have guilt and I might be angry. I might have three or four things running for myself, whereas an animal, it's it's going to be pretty simple and and I mean, I'm really not meaning to diminish their feelings at all, but they aren't going to run guilt and anger at the same time. They're pretty clean. They're going to stay in their, you know, their rage or their need to protect, um, but they're not going to feel guilty about that. Whereas, you know, if I accidentally said something that sounded protective and then realized I didn't need to protect, I'm not going to... You know, if a dog goes in charge of somebody and is barking in protection, realizes it's a friend, they don't have 16 emotions involved with that. If I went out and yelled at the mailman and then realized it was the mailman, I'd be like, oh, my God, you know, I'd feel dumb. I'd feel, you know, I'd feel a bunch of things quickly. Um, but they, it's very simple and clean, and they move on from it very simply and cleanly. And I, I like to think of, like, we could come up with a million emotions for us, whereas for animals, there's a, a guy, I can't say his name, but he's got some sort of, I think, uh, like, northern European name. He's a doctor at the Washington State University, um, and he studies behavior. And he says that, you know, that really animals have a very, like they like to, we we share with them seeking, we share rage, we share fear, panic, lust, care, play, and grief. And there might be a couple of others. I know that Dr. Mark Beckoff says he um, that you could also add embarrassment and you know a couple of other things in there. I don't think he added embarrassment. I think I added embarrassment. But I've seen you know animals be embarrassed for a minute and then they move on. So I guess that's, you know, like if a dog missed, if you throw the ball to the dog and it was the best catcher on the planet, and one minute the dog didn't catch the ball, and it might be embarrassed for a moment, but it's going to still go chase the ball, whereas we might get stuck in that embarrassment and it would affect our performance. And, you know, it, ours, ours resonate out differently, and they're able to move through it more quickly. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, it, it actually sounds to me that we could learn a lot about processing our emotions from animals. Do you think that's true? I think we could learn a ton from them because it's, uh, and also little kids do that, you know. And uh, I actually, I uh, I love to watch, like even, I have I have a few, I've got a lot of animals, <laughs> And, uh, How many animals have, do you have? Okay, I have ten. Um, okay, I have three horses, four cats, and three dogs, and um, that is endless entertainment. But one of the things I watch is I love to show people this. One of my cats can be very, 
you could look at two of my cats and say that the one cat is holding a grudge against the other cat. And I would argue that's just not true. Watch. It's that she's protective of her space. And in that, she's, you know, she doesn't like this one cat, her brother, to come and sit on top of the refrigerator if she's there. She's a little territorial about the top of the refrigerator. She's a little bit territorial about a spot in my bedroom. But when they're outside, they always appear to be on a caper together. So I think a lot of times we assign big things like, oh, they hate each other, or oh, they're jealous of each other, when it really might be protective over somebody's lap for a minute, but in other settings, um, it's, it's a whole different experience. So we could really learn also from not assigning these big like patterns to each other, like, oh, they're negative. You know, there's so many ways that we we could learn from watching how, yeah, in this situation, she is protective. It's not a grudge. In this situation, she loves to play with her brother. So it's. I think it's endlessly fascinating what we could wa- learn from them. Have you seen some examples where people put human ways of dealing with emotions onto animals and where they're really just off base? Yeah, jealousy is my favorite one to talk about because um, I think that when a lot of times I, I've seen people, if I've gotten people to drop the idea, like I'll, they'll have me talk to their two cats that aren't getting along and they'll say, wow, the one, they're jealous of each other. And I'll say, okay. So I get quiet and I connect with the one cat and find out what's going on with that cat. Then I connect with the other cat, find out what's going on with that cat. And, you know, if I can find out who they are in, in the, the best of circumstances and not go into the, the drama that's been placed on them, then I can ask the person, I'll say, you know, this cat seems very gregarious in these situations and this cat seems very gregarious in this situation and yet they can't seem to be that together, is there a chance you could really, it's almost like working with the archetype, like really bring out this um, mama's boy in him in this situation and with the other cat bring out another aspect of him where he might be the, the protector of the house and let them really define themselves differently and drop the concept, if you could drop the concept of jealousy they might have a chance of working it out. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And, you know, it brings me to one of the key points you make at the very beginning of your book, Energy Healing for Animals. You talk about how whoever the human leader is in the household, that that person is the emotional leader of the entire multi-species household. So I'd love to hear more about that, what you mean by this idea of being the emotional leader and why does a human get to have that role and which human when you have a couple in a house? I mean, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, well, so that, that, that little example I gave just now to me is a pretty good example of what I'm talking about because if, um, if the human is, putting on, you know, just constantly, oh, my God, my cats are jealous, gets on the phone. My cats are jealous, talks to their friends at the store. Uh, I can't, 
no, my cats can't be in the same room. They're jealous. Um, you know, it just goes on and on and on, and there's almost like a wall that's built up. Now, if that so that person has created a story that is now creating a reality, and if she, you could collapse that story and drop that story, she, you know, her cats could have a different experience. And actually, one of the techniques I talk about in the book, EFT, Emotional Freedom Technique, is so great for helping to drop that emotional story. So, but getting back to the leadership, um, I I love um, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake talks about the morphic resonance, that if you have, you know, once, uh, he's usually talking about people, people come together, it creates a morphic resonance, that their fields of energy have merged, and now that field of energy has its own intelligence and its own uh, emotion, so to speak, and its own kind of signature in the universe. And I think of our households, our multi-species households, as um, having their own emotional leadership. So if, um, for example, uh, someone is having a really hard day and they come in, uh, their hard day is going to affect the household. If the person understands how much of a leader they are, they might make different choices about how they would affect the household. And I'll, I'll tell a little story. I had um, um, my, my dog, who's about to be 14 in a, in a week. Um, she, uh, I got her when I was married, and then I, uh, I got separated. I separated from my ex-husband twice. The second time ended in divorce. And we had little kids that were her kids. She's Border Collie Cross, so she took care of everything. And um, so we lost, you know, we were sad. We, we grieved. We, were, we lost the marriage. She lost, you know, kind of her dad figure. We lost the kids. We left that home. There was a lot of loss. And then I moved to the Seattle area because my dad was sick. And... I didn't bring her with me um, to see my dad a lot. On occasion, my dad came out to the farm, but, um, you know, I pretty much would go and attend to him. And uh, uh, I somewhere in there I lost a cat, and so the dog and I grieved the loss of the cat. So we were familiar with being in each other's field of grief. My other dog, well, so then I get a new dog. This dog comes and, um, you know, life goes on, and uh, we have a couple of good years, and then my dad dies. So I watched my dog go into grief again with me. And I just had to look at her and say, you know what, this one is my grief. I get to have this grief. I need you guys to be the dogs, to be the really fun dogs, the dogs that get me out of the house, get me out having fun, get me out of my head. We don't, you, you don't really, you don't know my dad that well. You don't get to grieve him. And so it really shifted the household and created a balance. So I, I could still have my grief, but I took leadership in, and in identifying it, watching them start to morph into this grief with me, 
recognize that they have different jobs entirely and I need them to perform I need those jobs performed more than anything because I could lie on the couch for a year so I needed them to help me get up go out I mean I had to feed horses of course you know it's like help me be cheerful about chores help me in that way and then so even though I was still grieving I was managing how the household stayed Does that make? Yeah, that is. I want to circle back to something you said. You said that there's an EFT, emotional freedom technique, that can be quite effective, that you can use with a a challenge with your multi-species household. What's that technique? How do you use it? Okay, so the uh, technique is um, tapping, emotional EFT tapping. Uh, where you're tapping on the meridian. So each of the, um, you're tapping on acupressure points on the meridians. And so for humans, we tap on the, around the eye, under the eye, and then just there's a few, about six other points. Each of those points are connected to an organ. Um, or Well, they're co- connected to a, a meridian that's named after an organ system. And every organ system and or meridian is attached to an emotion. So um, what I started doing was using those same points on animals, and it's been profound. And I know there's a couple other people that are doing it as well, but it's I'm one of the few people that uh, really does it a lot and teaches it as much as I can because it is, I, I can't even tell you the, the miracles that have happened with um, watching people's households shift. Um, but uh, so, for example, if you had, let's say, you went and adopted a dog at the uh, shelter. I just have to say that a raven just made the most spectacular landing in my front yard right now, so I think that's auspicious. Um, anyway, um, so let's say somebody goes and adopts a dog from the shelter, and the dog seems perfectly easygoing and they have, you know, the human is going about their life, and uh, everything seems really great, and the human comes home one day, and the couch has been chewed, like eaten. And so now, so what set the dog up to do the chewing may be anxiety. Let's just assign that emotion for the moment. So for the dog, it's anxiety. Whether the dog picked up on anxiety from the human, whether the dog came to the household with anxiety is of no difference. Either way, there's a big emotion for the animal that made, it's not of no difference, but in this case, we don't, we wouldn't have to look at that so much as we would just look at the dog is experiencing anxiety. And if you look at the human, the human is going to feel uh, a number of feelings. They're going to feel guilty that they left the dog home from because they had to go to work. They're going to feel angry because they just didn't know what to do. Or they might feel sad about their couch. Or they might feel... They're going to feel a bunch of things. So with the EFT, and then let's say a couple more events happen. The next week it's the favorite chair. Or it's the, the you know, curtains got shredded. Or, it's, you know, whatever it is. So each one of those things is now the person. So the dog is feeling more anxiety. The human is feeling all those feelings, and it just kind of gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it can't even fit in the room. 
and the I would start with tapping probably on the dog and doing a number of the things that are in that book, Some a lot of grounding things to help release some of the anxiety, give do- the dog confidence, maybe some jobs. And I would probably tap on the dog for anxiety. And I would separately tap on the human for all those emotions that they felt the first day they saw that couch um, shredded like that. And, and probably my my guess is I'd probably start digging around to see how much guilt the person had too because often uh, human guilt can um, elevate an anxiety or an underlying feeling in a dog and it doesn't usually go well. So when you talk about tapping on an animal, whether it's a dog or a horse or a cat, they have meridians just like we do? They have meridians just like we do. And one of the best things every human could ever find out about is the bladder meridian, which runs from the top of the head um, down to um, down their legs. And what it sometimes just stroking an animal from the top of the head to the end of the tail, you know, along the bladder meridian can be it can be a great way to start or end any sort of healing session, even if you don't know what you're doing. Uh, and it can also be just a really calming thing, and it can also, if your dog is older and is losing its hind end, it can kind of just remind that hind end to be alive again. And the thing about the bladder meridian is that, like I was saying with the, um, all those points, especially let's say you couldn't touch a dog's face or a horse's face or a cat's face, tapping along the bladder meridian can really be just as effective because each one of the acupressure points along the bladder meridian has an association with um, the different uh, organ systems as well. So you're, you can hit like a stomach meridian and kind of alleviate some fear or worry. You can hit, you know, so you'll, it's almost as effective as tapping on those points. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, Joan, it seems like when it comes to humans, it's pretty well accepted at this point that acupressure, acupuncture, that working with the meridians is effective. I mean, it's pretty much, I think, that's accepted by people, that yeah. what we know from Chinese medicine about these flows in the body, that if we work with them, we're going to create healing, circulation, etc. But What's the evidence or what's the research behind saying, oh, yes, and these animals have meridians as well and we can map on in this way? Uh, Well, apparently, um, Dr. Cheryl Schwartz, who uh, endorsed the book and is an author and an acupuncturist and a vet, um, she said that they actually, as way back as um, uh, almost, you know, they say that 
acupuncture started 6,000 years ago. Almost that far back, they uh, mapped it out on an elephant who had a stomachache, and did uh, that was the first known acupuncture case was actually an elephant with a huh. big bad tummy ache. So they, it was mapped out a long time ago. It's very, it's similar on the one hand, um, but obviously being um, only bipedal, we've got only two legs. Um, some of the points end on on what would be their hind legs and our legs, and then some run down what are our arms or their front legs. And um, the ting points are very similar, which are. Uh, good for stimulating the immune system. So the ting points are kind of on our nail beds, um, on our hands and feet, and it's the same for the do- the dog. So there's, you know, it's it's similar, and it's funny because I think back on um, the early '90s when when I had this cha- some challenges with my horses and how I ended up on this whole path. I actually started a little bit more with energy work than I did animal communication. But one of the things I did was acupuncture and chiropractic. And I always liked acupuncture, but I can remember having friends actually go to the acupuncturist because it worked on their horse. So sometimes uh, our animals get us to do, sometimes it works the opposite, that it's so well understood with the animals that people are willing to try it. And have you found that there are certain conditions that respond best to an energy healing approach? Yeah, I think, I think, well, first and foremost, I think, especially practitioners, if we, if we have a good um, practice, like for my students in my program, I'm constantly having them, you know, create practices in their day that, that raises their frequency. If we're coming to it, it's almost like an animal communication session itself can be a healing because information is revealed and we've stayed calm and helped shift the energy that way. Um, but I think so. I think almost anything is does well with energy healing. I think uh, things like uh, um, some things like kidney disease and liver disease, I've seen them do really well with energy healing. I've seen um, tumors go down with energy healing. I've seen, I I think that energy healing is actually great for uh, those anxious dogs or cats or, or uh, horses. And at the bottom of all healing is, um, you know, relaxation, a sense of, uh, getting into the parasympathetic nervous system. And for animals, they are more quickly, because they are fight or flight, um, they, they can kind of amp up quicker. And, um, again, that's their survival instinct. And so bringing that down and being able to really calm the system down is, uh, even if it isn't a cure for cancer, it at the very least gets the animal system to relax and when you can relax then healing can take place and that's true i believe also with behavior so i i I link them together that you know it doesn't matter whether it's behavior or a wellness challenge that it's that energy healing will be calming and a shift can occur now joan we talked briefly about meridians and how animals 
have meridians as well as humans. And I know in your book, Energy Healing for Animals, you also talk about the chakras and how we can work with an animal's chakras, just like we work with our own or with another person's chakras in an energy healing session. So talk a little bit about that. How do the human chakras map on to animals? Uh, it's, this is such a fun subject. Um, so if we look at where they're... Uh, one of my favorite things to watch is, is when animals meet. And if we look at their first chakra, it's where their tail is. And um, every, we are about the only species that meets head-on, eye-to-eye, and shakes people's hands. If you watch, you know, dogs at the dog park, they've got to smell each other's butts. Um, horses swing their butts around so quick when they first meet each other. And, you know, just every single species practically has some element of meeting and greeting with their first chakra. And it's, it is absolutely uh, just built in. And that first chakra is all, you know, how it represents like our human tribes, our families and what have you. For them, it can represent their herds and their packs and their flocks and their prides or colonies. And it uh, is, uh, so even cats, for example, will smell, you know, they've got pheromones that, that they, you know, everybody checks in with each other that way and uh it's just not a big it's not uh in any way shape or form how we function so watching animals on their hind ends uh it's endlessly fascinating and the other piece of that is uh that first chakra also you can see like uh a the animals that aren't really confident where their tail is dropped, things like that, you can see kind of where they might fit in their pack. So you might work with that first chakra to really get, you know, to help an animal get a little more confidence within their within their dog pack um, or even in the household with, you know, other humans. And then that second chakra is very, very much like the human chakra, except that we don't have money and they don't have money involved. But it's, it's you know, you watch older dogs as they lose their hind end. A lot of times, you know, the creativity, their purpose, their relationship is shifting, things like that. And, and it's, it starts, well, sometimes it starts in the third chakra, but there's a lot of, um, a lot of stuff that um, kind of can break down there as they get older and um, as, you know, their purpose changes and it just it goes all the way through to the first chakra very similarly with you know the human human chakra system and it's uh and i often think about you know that the sixth chakra for them is i think pretty interesting because there's so many animals that have a um have sonar like i I take people on wild dolphin swims and you know watching the dolphins echolocate their food is I could spend days, and I do <laughs> spend days watching that. So um, I feel like the third eye on an animal is even more pronounced because I've seen, for example, dogs 
that are blind. That's almost as if they can still see, and it's they're utilizing their senses in a way, in a bigger way than we do. But I also feel like there's almost a sonar that goes on for them, like a made-up sonar that they're like kind of tracking the energy of what's in front of them. So, how do you sense or diagnose? a chakra imbalance in an animal as part of an energy healing session? And then what, for example, just to give an example, might you do about it? Well, uh, when I teach um, workshops, I let people uh, take a pendulum and go over each of the chakras so that they can see. Uh, but if they've studied for me with me for a long time, then I'll take that pendulum away <laughs> and have them tune in because we work a lot with the medical intuition um, and scanning animals that way. Uh, so uh, one of the things that uh, I would say that you can do, I, I teach a technique called the scalar wave, and so we, the first part is running energy through the whole system and getting a feel for the system, and then the second part is um, spinning the chakras and imagining them in perfect uh, balance. So you know, you might see the color and see the shape and see the size and really making sure that it's that it's all working. And then in that technique, we bring in the energy, bring in the scalar energy. But with, with seeing just the mind's eye, it's really interesting. If you think of all the organs that are, you know, you've got your third chakra is where all the digestive organs are. And it's also our gut instinct. So if we look at animals, and maybe they're not as conf again going back to the confidence piece, you might even um, at the very least you could do what I like to call a little chakra massage, and that is uh, place your hand right over there and really right on the third chakra mid back and get that almost like you're massaging it clockwise to just get it going again. That's a great way to start to sense it but it's interesting when you look at your own animal and you people have a tough time believing me when I say this except then they start to look and go oh my god you'll actually see let's say you have a dog that is upset with um, that's a warrior okay we'll just say that it's a warrior and it worries emotionally about their human and it also has digestive disorders. And so those two things go hand in hand, say. So the physical reality of that chakra and the emotional reality of that chakra. Um, obviously, you could treat that chakra with a probiotic or enzymes, something to get the digestion better. But you'd also be treating that chakra emotionally and, and helping them, you know, saying to the dog, look, you don't have to worry about me. I know my life looks kind of crazy, but it's all good. Or whatever it is that you want to say to the dog. And then you could do that chakra massage or some more um, involved involved things. But what people never believe me is you could actually look at your dog, and my guess is if you have one of those warriors with bad digestion, you're going to actually see the difference in the coat from the top of the head down to the shoulder. It's probably pretty smooth. And then the coat will be ruffled or different and not lay the same way on the stomach area, on the ribs, on the side, right there at the third chakra mid-back area. 
and then the coat will even back out again um, at the flank and on down the legs. It's the same with horses. They, you can, you'll see like they might have a really shiny neck and then shiny coat on the shoulder, and then it'll be kind of rough over the rib cage, and then it'll pick back up and be shiny again on the hind end. And cats, the same thing. You might see where they don't groom as well around that stomach area. So that's just one, you know, that's just one example. But even with lamenesses and things like that, you can see the coat ruffling. Let's move now, Joan, to talking about how we might apply energy healing in different circumstances with our animal companions. So let's take an example. Let's pretend you're moving from one house to another. What could you do to help the animals in your family feel okay about a big move? Well, that's a great question because I think that's something that um, gets very uh, slippery, so to speak, for people. Um, And so the first thing that I like to remind people of is whether whether you're moving or traveling even, um, a lot of times what happens is, again, they're, they're picking up on our pictures, words, and feelings, you know, telepathy, and they always are tracking the leader, so to speak, um, or the leaders of a household. And what happens when we do something like get ready to move is we go into a thousand details, and all of a sudden the animal doesn't see themselves in all these pictures. We might be thinking about math. We might be thinking about uh, whether the furniture is going to fit. You know, we can have a million thoughts in a move. And we might worry about how the animals are going to do. So they're picking up on these pictures that don't include them and then feelings that are um, not their favorites, not not safe. So uh, then they start to get worried. And... uh, so I w- the first thing I have people do is to picture the outcome, which would be <clears throat> like maybe if it's a cat, all the favorite sunspots that the cat might find in the new house. If it's a dog, maybe all the new perfect um, walks that the people and the dog would do. Um, and if it's a horse, what the new stall or arrangements would look like. I actually have a, a funny story about that. But... Um, And then the next thing I would do is maybe some, um, you know, massage, some body work that puts them in their body and doesn't have them um, be up in their head and all worried. And then the um, maybe something like essential oil, something really calming, um, something calming but also grounding. And uh, I would just walk them through, like every time... You're even going to look at a house. I say, you know, I have the people, um, I usually have clients just describe where they've been to the dog. Like, on the new house, there's no stairs, or in this house that we looked at today, there's lots of windows to lie, you know, lie by when we put the furniture in, and just walk them through the whole thing as if, you know, we're all in this together, really calm and cool and collected about the whole thing. I actually had a, I moved in 1999 or 2000, I moved one of my horses up from Los Angeles to the Seattle area 
and I've moved them several times to Florida and Denver and, and back to Seattle. But the first big move with my one horse, I had told her exactly what the place looked like that, you know, when she got off the trailer, there would be a barn on either side, and she would be in the first stall on the left side in the new barn to the right, and the pasture was straight ahead. I just constantly described the place to her. So of all things, the haulers, um, you know, I paid this big professional service. They lost her somewhere in, like, Bakersfield. I don't even know if she ended up on a wrong truck and went to San Francisco. But every for three days, she was missing. So every night I sent her messages of, I know I'm going to find you, and when you get off the trailer, your first your stall will be that first stall on the left in the barn on the right. And I just kept describing and picturing, and you'll be fine, you'll be fine. So when they finally located her and told me that you know she'd be in the Seattle area in the next day or so, um, I you know met the truck when the truck arrived, and she got off that trailer so like well. Wow, that took a long time, and just marched straight to her stall. Hmm. So, you know, we can really set up a, a proactive, positive experience about moving. Now, when you mentioned that the animals in our life are picking up on the inner pictures that we have, what's going on inside of us, if you will, what about when we're going through a really difficult time? Like maybe we're going through a divorce or really difficult career change. How do we help our animals who probably are trying to help us? That Yeah, they are definitely trying to help us. So that is uh, one of my favorite topics and a very, very great question. I I love to think of a household that it has a pH, right? That it, it has the we want to be setting the thermostat, so to speak, um, to, so that the pH of the household is the potential for harmony. So we're, if we have a pretty um, even leadership about what's going on in general, we're allowed to have a hard time, and it doesn't have to affect them. Um, I uh, tell the story, actually, in the book. My dog, Olivia, and I went through... Um, a divorce. We went through, we lost my stepkids, the husband, the household, and um, we were grieving. And then we lost uh, my beloved cat, and we were grieving. And we went into almost a grief track together. Then when my father died a few years ago, I watched, as I was grieving, I watched Olivia going into grief. And I thought, wow, you know what? You didn't really know my dad. And you met him a handful of times, but this isn't yours to grieve. And I understand you're feeling badly for me, but right now I need you to be the dog. I need you to get me out of the house. I need you to get me going because our relationship, you know, needs to be the fun. So I think really identifying, you know, being aware of your own feelings and aware of what's going on for your animal at the time is a really important thing. And when I was telling her to be the dog, I put her in a little bubble and I kept myself in a little bubble as far as like these are my feelings, even though we've got this giant uh, energy field of our combined, all of the combined animals, and it's, uh, you know, that's has a oneness to it um, or a morphic resonance, but we're all individuals in this and 
we get to be autonomous and have our own feelings about things. So for Olivia, I needed her to be really, you know, the fun and the joy that she normally is, and I was allowed to grieve. And so I think identifying our feelings, identifying who they are in this, like if uh, maybe somebody's a real entertainer, you know, maybe you've got a dog that loves to do tricks or a cat that's hilarious, you know, just really encourage them to be who they are naturally and that that's an important um, part of your struggle is to kind of come out of your head. So you need them to stay who they are. And I think sometimes putting a bubble around them is a good thing. Um, Just imagining a little imaginary bubble and that they're protected from the highs and lows of what we're going through. And then remind them that it's just, it's, it's people stuff that um, we're going through something, but they still get to be fine. Joan, it seems like in both of these examples about energy healing in action, if you will, with our animals, really the core of it is having confidence that if I send a message through a picture or an image or have a conversation inside myself with the animal, that really having confidence that this communication is being received, that that's really important. It's hugely important. And that confidence uh, will translate for the animal in that everything's okay. Yeah. Now let's take an example when I imagine somebody would really want to pick up a book like Energy Healing for Animals. Their companion animal is injured in some way. Maybe we'll just take an example of like a broken leg or something like that. Mm -hmm. How do I use energy healing? You know, I've gone to the traditional route and my animals, you know, lying here in a cast. What can I do? Well, there's uh, a million little things in the book definitely that would help. Like I, so let's say first and foremost, you have a broken leg and animals tend to be reactive And what you need is that animal to be resting and calm in order for the leg to um, heal. And because they're so instinctual, if you have the least, uh, even just the least amount of a bouncy dog, you're still going to be then continuing to stress the leg out. Uh, You know, that you might be um, prolonging the healing if you've got, if you can't keep the dog quiet. So, you know, when we think about... Animals and humans share a need for safety, and once there's some safety, we can relax, and once we can relax, we can heal. And so the first thing I would do would be to be putting that dog in a constantly in a, in a very um, calm state. So you might use homeopathics, you might use, um, uh, again, essential oils. And then if you're looking at say, a broken leg on the front left, you're going to eventually have a compensation pattern of um, a more use on that right shoulder. Um, so the other thing is that uh, you're going, you're, you know, you want to make sure that, I like to think of the two things you're going to deal with with a broken leg is you want to have... Um, you know, uh, redistribution, so to speak, of the energy. So all the attention would be on that front left leg. 
So I'd be doing a lot of massaging, and what I talk about in the book, the bladder sweep, which is going along the bladder meridian, which runs from the top of the head to um, back of, to their hind end. Um, I'd be doing a lot of stroking and imagining, you know, using my intention that I'm keeping the energy even throughout the entire body. I would do some acupressure points on the hind feet, which I describe in the book, and then I would be really massaging that right shoulder that's taking the brunt of the compensation pattern there. So all the work on the hind end is not only taking the energy away from all the focus being on that front leg, but it also aids in the circulation. And anytime you have relaxation and good circulation, you'll heal an injury pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the things I've seen here, especially living in Boulder, Colorado, is huge industries that now exist to support people in taking good care of their animals from, you know, bakeries for pets mm-hmm. and all kinds of different types of clothes. Yeah, the whole thing. And I'm curious, do you think that energy healing for animals is a new industry, if you will, that's going to come online? I think so. I I know that uh, just even a few years ago, um, I, I think that people are really open to it, more so right now than, than they ever have been. Because I've been in it for a long time, and I, I believe that even down to the divine timing of when this book actually came out is, um, I, I think the timing is really good because I I I feel like there have been other books out there that um, haven't gone in as much detail and uh, aren't as well known, and I feel like this is really going to um, start to take a hold for people and. Uh, really uh, become not just a a career, but um, something that everybody's talking about. Because I really believe things like just good food is as fuel is energy medicine when we think about it, water, exercise, all of that, what we put our energy into with our animals, that soon energy healing for animals is going to be a much bigger conversation as people start to understand it. So, yeah, I think I think it's definitely going to be uh, coming into awareness for a lot more people. I'm imagining, like, shelves of homeopathic remedies for animals and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that definitely. But, you know, it's funny because I feel like there's so many people that really, um, at least I remember in the 90s when people would do things for their horses. Um, They would end up doing stuff for themselves that they wouldn't normally do. So sometimes our animals get us to um, take a deeper look at something that might work. So here you might go and try some herbs for the dog and think, wow, that worked really well. So maybe I'll try it too. So it really opens up a conversation for all of us Mm -hmm. to be a little healthier. Yeah. Now, Joan, there's one last area that I want to explore with you, which has to do with how we might use energy healing when our animal companion is going through the death process, approaching death and dying, and what your experience is with that. Well, 
my experience is as uh, you know I've lost several animals and family members and friends and it's an a weird thing to say but it's uh, probably one of the most precious times of our lives to be witness and to be in what I call that state of grace with another being and in particular our animals and I think that there is something so beautiful about that time if people just take a moment to look. And I understand some people can't um, go there. It's too hard. But I think more, and part of that is I think there isn't a discussion, certainly in our culture here in the United States, about grief and about dying. We do anything we can to not look at it. And yet I think there's times when we feel more alive than we ever do when we're in facing that with someone else as they're leaving. And so with our animals, one of the things that I find is sometimes people will say something like, oh, they were hanging on to that animal for too long. And I like to remind people we are just not that powerful. If that animal is still around against all odds, it's probably because the person took time out, didn't go to work for a few days, laid around on the floor with them, And the love that is created and unhindered by anything else around, no other distractions, that love is so delicious, it's hard to leave. And so I think that people go into, I call that the state of grace, where it's just this uh, beautiful existence almost tethered by love. And there's nothing else, I mean, eventually, you know, it's nice if, People are around to kind of bring dinner by or um, allowing uh, friends, you know, human and otherwise, to come say goodbye. But otherwise, you know, there's no distraction at that time. And so I think that that's a really, really beautiful blessing. And so some of the things that really would help is, you know, all of the energy work uh, ideas in there help because, again, uh, if it's been a painful disease or injury, um, you know, you want the animal to be as comfortable as they can be. Uh, but the other thing, and I know um, people go through this too, there there seems to be a certain point at the end of the life that um, that pain isn't even really part of the equation it becomes, um, as I said, this really beautiful state of grace that's tethered by love. And when you're in that place, you almost can't feel pain. So there's there are some real magical periods. Almost everybody I know that has gone through that with their animal has said, oh, as painful as it was, it was the most beautiful thing on the planet. And there were a lot of blessings in that loss. And so I really encourage people to take that time but uh, um, and so you know again any of the healing modalities in there would be really um, wonderful and delicious and then a lot of self-care is important because um, that's hard to go through no matter what this question Joan to finish is a little odd but I know in your work as an animal communicator you've conversed if you will, with probably at this point thousands of animals 
And I'm curious if you were to boil down the communication that our animal companions overall want us humans to hear that we're not getting, like, God, the humans just don't seem to get this. Is there a way, can you do that? Can you boil down the pith of it for me? You know what? I would love to, because here's what I think. The, if I were to boil it down, it would be look through your dog's eyes, look through your cat's eyes, look through your horse's eyes, if the horse bucks because its back is sore, they're not betraying you. If the dog is biting the neighbor because, um, it, you know, because the neighbor came into the yard and you are are taking that personally, don't. There's so many things that we we take personally and we we compound because we don't. Uh, we don't know how to kind of, uh, I guess, water it down a little bit. So, for example, the animals get very confused by our emotional state. Um, and that may be a result of their behavior, but they don't get that. So if your dog is... Um, doing something naughty, they're not doing it because of you. They're doing it, and you feel a million feelings about it, and those feelings aren't necessarily going to help. I, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but I'm I'm trying to... I, I just see the confusion from animals all the time, and then the people will say to me, doesn't he understand that if he gets three bites, then he's going to be euthanized by the state? And it's like... No, he doesn't understand that. How could he understand that? He's a dog. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really looking through their eyes. I think that's a, a yeah. beautiful way to summarize it. I've been speaking with Joan Ranquette. She is the author of a beautiful new book, A Hands-On Guide for Enhancing the Health, Longevity, and Happiness of Your Pets, a book called Energy Healing for Animals. Joan, congratulations on its publication. You really put a lot into it. It's really packed with techniques, ideas, and suggestions for people. Well, thank you, and thank you for um, having faith in it. I very much do. Energy Healing for Animals with Joan Ranquette. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.